0: Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I am your host, Nesson Birmingham. Today, it gives me great pleasure to welcome John Leonard. John is President and Chief Executive Officer of Therapeutics. He spent over 30 years in the pharmaceutical research and development industry, most recently as Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President of Research and Development at AbbVie. Welcome, John. John, thank you very much for taking the time for the podcast today. You know, I certainly appreciate how busy you are. Uh, you've accomplished a tremendous amount in a very short period of time uh, with Intellia. Um, you know, I always think it's interesting for someone in your position and given your history to take a step back and look at the sort of evolution of medicine from your perspective that's kind of led us to where we are today with the great TTR data and the build out of the pipeline in Intellia. Um but also how you kind of think about um contextualizing that from both a physician and patient perspective.
1: Yeah. Well, uh first of all it's uh, great to be talking with Nesson. It's that was uh, a pleasure. You know, when I you make me think back over the career which is being a little long now, it's over thirty years, I guess. Um I'm a physician by training. And when I was in medical school and then doing my internship and residency, the AIDS epidemic was just beginning. And, uh, you know, it it was something that has influenced me from pretty much the get go, which is thinking about, you know, when you don't have medicines, uh, where do they come from? And what does it take to make them? And my own career in medicine has been not one of care delivery, but of of trying to you know bring new medications into the pharmacopeia. And so, when you take the long view of that, um, you know we 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 had some really exciting success early on with with HIV when we introduced uh, the HIV protease inhibitors. When so I at so well, when I was starting at Abbott Laboratories back in the early '90s. And it's one of those situations where you can see what technology can do, um, particularly when you, you know, can think molecularly about a disease. And just to give you some notion of the impact, that class of medicines uh, in, in in the mid 90s led to a reduction in the AIDS death rate of by about two thirds in the United States. So it's it's one of those. Things where, although you may not be taking care of patients, you really feel that you're bringing something to them uh, at, at the largest possible level, and you know that's played out in a variety of different steps along the way. We at Abbott had the uh, good fortune to work on Humira, where when I think about being a kid and and you know seeing. Typically older women with advanced rheumatoid arthritis, oftentimes in wheelchairs with gnarled hands and, you know, unable to walk. Cetera, you don't see those patients very much. And that's a testimony, I think, to the progress we in the field have made. And, you know, just kind of add these things up. You know, think about, well, small molecules, antibodies, as is the case with Humira. Um you know, each of those different modalities was able to go after a whole different set of diseases and make a difference. And I, I feel like now, uh, with genome editing, we're at the verge of of being able to open up a whole other set of diseases where we can make some really significant contributions to. And that's that's what we work on here at Antelia. And I, I think we're really starting to knock on that door.
0: Well, obviously, great TTR data, right, that's been... Um presented by the company to date. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, your experience in, you know, Intellia, you know, moving into the clinic, you know, as you know, right, you and I, there at the start, right, looked at building the company up, the overall premise around it. um You know, it was an interesting time. um It would be great to get your perspective and your thoughts around the sort of trajectory of the company and what's actually taken place as that data actually ultimately came out. but. The, the first dosing of a patient you know how did you feel about it how did you how did you think you know the evening before the day of the evening after you know it'd be great to hear your thoughts about that
1: well uh it's absolutely true um we were there at the beginning and you were at the beginning and i had the pleasure of of joining you and working with you as and with several others and by the way you know for your listeners if you Uh, Have a chance to look at uh, Nesson's blog. I think it nicely details some of those early days, which were uh, very fun and exciting because it was, you know, in the earliest months, frankly, uh, as CRISPR started coming into focus. You know, I I think what we presented last year uh, and then extended this year really has its origins in some of the early thinking that, you know, you did, and, and and we did as as a team, thinking about how to progress uh, genome editing. And you know, there, there's there's and I like to think of this in, in terms of of uh, uh, Venn diagrams. There's the editing that you got to solve for. There's the disease state that you have to be able to make some kind of uh, effect that's measurable in the clinic. And critically important also is the delivery piece. And so. You'll remember those early days where, you know, the um, immediate temptation was to go into the ex vivo setting, taking cells outside the body and manipulating them. Uh, And that's certainly something we do, um, but we had made the decision, uh, and you were very influential in this, obviously, uh, to take what was becoming a, a really effective delivery approach, the lipid nanoparticle, and go after, uh, significant serious diseases, you know, uh, in the in vivo set. And, you know, I think in the early days that was viewed probably as, um, somewhat risky. Um, but I, I think the considerations were always, uh, if you can understand the system, if you can characterize it well, preclinically, if you can choose the proper disease state, um, it's an absolutely reasonable way to, to proceed. And you know, we've applied the principles of sound preclinical work. You know, many of us have been doing this for a long time and we 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 take the same sort of approaches for any other drug that you would give to a patient and then some uh, as the guidance here. And it um, shows uh, a condition known as TTR amyloidosis, where you know, there's a particular gene. You know exactly what to go after. It's in the sweet spot for delivery with a lipid nanoparticle liver, and it has a readily measured biomarker uh, that has been, you know, proven to be uh, meaningful with respect to predicting how patients are going to do ultimately with clinical conditions. And so that's what we uh, chose to pursue. And uh, you know, because you were certainly a, a fundamental part of all this. The early days were putting all the pieces together and, and getting the pieces. And you know, that I think pretty much defined the early uh, couple of years of, of of the company. But you know, we got to a point where the performance and preclinical in vitro models, and then ultimately the in vivo setting talking about rodents and the non-human primates, gave us uh, a lot of comfort that we were ready to go uh, into human beings. And um, we did that and did it in a very, I think, uh, responsible and 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 thoughtful way uh, uh, and reported some of the early results um, just last summer. Now, it's interesting what you say. What, what does it feel like? Um, I was just worried about what I felt like and what the individual patients were imagining as, you know, uh, they agreed to have the IV infusion and, and be literally some of the first people on earth to have in vivo editing done. Um, they're brave. And, and obviously, they, they trust the work that we did. And, you know, I take that very, very seriously with respect to the quality of the work that we do so that, that that trust is justified. But we had the very good fortune of seeing results that pretty much corroborated our early modeling work that showed as you you know stepped up the doses uh, in this single ascending dose study that we did, that we were pretty accurate with the numbers that we projected and were able to get to uh, very, very quickly Levels of knocking out of the TTR gene uh, that uh, we could measure with protein reductions of TtR that have really surpassed those achieved with anybody else and any other modalities, and so um, that was incredibly exciting uh, last year. Uh, I should add that the patients all did very, very well from a safety point of view. We've been extremely pleased with you know the performance of the drug. And you know we've been advancing the program, collecting more patients. Not only with polyneuropathy is a form of the disease that's uh, that we started with, but also cardiomyopathy patients. We're following them out for um, you know uh, indefinite periods of time, and we've updated some of that work earlier this year. And we'll continue to do that later this year, and the early results have continued to um, be uh, borne out uh, as as we provided updates. So we believe we're onto something here that's going to be uh, quite important for a whole series of different uh, genetic diseases. And it all comes from this original decision to be going after broken genes in the body uh, with uh, in vivo delivery.
0: Well, I think, excuse me, the, Human data certainly plays it out, right? It's great to see it. It's you know you're being very nice, right? There were investors who told us we were absolutely crazy to be doing this, and that there was no way that they would invest into the company. Um, you know, I remember the Series A, Series B uh, pitching, right? Where I, you know, the feedback was pretty, at times, pretty stark. Um, you know, and i was certainly very grateful to Atlas, Novartis, you know, Orbimed, Foresight, Tumasic, you know, all of those groups. Fidelity that really took took a bet on us, right? Uh, putting the money in and supporting the actual vision that we had for moving the company forward and and the ability then once that data comes in to rapidly expand. It's been great to see that expansion now taking place as I look at your pipeline and how quickly you've started to move things very actively now into the clinic. Um, it really shows how quickly the data has uh, catalyzed, you know, that rapid progression now and building out f- from a clinical standpoint add uh, the, the, the relevant pipeline here.
1: Yeah, and and that's absolutely true. I mean, we we have uh, a couple in vivo programs in the clinic, and we'll be presenting data later this year on hereditary angioedema. Uh, and then we have some programs uh, in, in the preclinical phase moving towards regulatory filings in the clinic soon for alpha one antitrypsin, et cetera. And we've also moved into the ex vivo space. But it really stems from, again, some of those very early decisions where the pace of moving that forward uh, was enabled by the delivery modality itself. By using a lipid nanoparticle, you could have what is essentially a modular system. And, uh, you know, once you work out the delivery for a, a tissue, you can hold the mRNA that codes, the Cas9 constant, and you can even hold the guide constant with the exception of about 20 nucleotides that will define where in any particular cell, um, you know, the editing is going to take place. And so we're really pleased with, you know, the outcome of some of those original strategic decisions that we made. And as we hoped would be the case, um, and you know, these were (laughs) all early discussions we had uh, together. Uh, that, you know, the the advantages of that modular system would play out with an acceleration of work in the clinic, and and that seems to be the case.
0: It, that Novartis deal really, to me, I don't know if you'd agree, was really such a catalytic event for us, being able to access uh, their lipid and nanoparticles to allow us to actually very rapidly move into in vivo studies and then obviously scale up from there. Um, it. You know, there's times, I don't know about you, but like there are times I reflect and kind of think about, okay, well, what were the sort of key events that took place that really kind of positioned us for building the company here? And to me, probably one of the biggest ones was that Novartis deal uh, and just being able to access those. Would you, you know, do you, are there other catalysts or critical events early on that you look at and say, you know, they really were determined the future of the company, we may not necessarily have totally understood the complete implications of it at the time.
1: well, there's no doubt that that was seminal in in many ways and uh, <laughs> you know, I remember some of those early conversations we had where you know exactly as this you're you're implying. You know, people had to believe uh, in what was the ultimate scientific logic. And I think we had the good fortune to work with people who who, who did believe uh, that. You know, other key decisions, one of them, no doubt, is choosing the uh, first indication of PTR. Uh, you know, uh, maybe we didn't fully appreciate how that was all going to play out in the early days. Um, But I I think we had, um, you know, very good foresight and even some good fortune, I would say, some of this early work was, you know, even as a model system that we were using, but it became apparent that it could also be a good therapeutic choice uh, for us uh, to pursue. So I I, I think that was another really important early decision that we made. I think, you know, focusing as we did. the, the the temptation early on was something so pleiotropic as, um, you know, CRISPR is to go do a bunch of stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I think we were quite focused on the important things and and doing it in a way that. It wouldn't just be a proof of concept to show that you could edit something but wind up in a cul-de-sac, you know, of, of an indication where there's no patients or, uh you know, get distracted with some of the early uh, temptation to go and just collect nucleases and that kind of stuff. But, I, you know, we've always taken a long view of what really matters is showing that this is going to be a medicine And, uh, you know, the the early days were painful because that's definitely the long view. And you you can take shortcuts and do things that get a lot of attention. But in the end, what really matters is making products that are are going to be meaningful to patients. And that was a decision we made at the the beginning. And so, you know, Nesson, I mean, some of those early days were a little lonely and we were – Fitness sort of bringing up the rear and in, in the minds of uh others um, but i I've always believed that that was you know the the path we took would ultimately be the right one and and I'm quite confident that that's the case now
0: well you know it, it lonely yes I mean, I, let's come back to that because i I think what was going on in the sector with respect to from a competitive landscape was a very interesting dynamic um but also while all of this was going on, you know, we were obviously dealing with, you know, discussions around the ethics, right? And and I think we really led, you know, putting positions out as it pertains to our, our belief and thoughts on the ethical use of the technology. And, you know, obviously a lot of discussion around bioterrorism, um, as you recall, and, and trips down right. to Capitol Hill, uh, to discuss, you know, the implications of the technology and how to think about it and and not just here in the US. You know, I think we we uh, spend a lot of time in the UK and over in mainland Europe, uh, also talking about it and talking about legislation and regulation. Um, it would be great to get your thoughts on that, and 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 dealing with all of that at the time and the issues that we were facing then versus today, where it really feels that a lot of the um, a lot of that um, discussion and those concerns considerations really have been you know, sidelined or they're they're not as relevant in people's minds as they were at the time.
1: You know, I was I was gonna <laughs> make that comment actually as as you were talking about the early days. We we rarely uh get questions about it today. Um, and I, I think some of that's because of some of those uh early positions that were taken. Uh people have abided by them. Um you know and and there's been enough um focus on you know the the truly medical aspects of this that that's I think characterized much of the work in the early days you'll remember that you know some of the stuff that you read was fanciful um i I still have a picture I show on occasion which was the cover of you know a, a journal that I esteem, which is The Economist. <laughs> Talking I remember about. it well. <laughs> right, exactly. It showed a little kid. And, you know, there was nothing about curing any disease. It was about enhancing IQ, running faster, changing the color of his hair and eyes and things like that. It's all about enhancement. And that was never uh, the thinking for any of us, certainly at Intelia, none of the people that I've interacted with, you know, in the industry um, that was more the stuff of, you know, Hollywood and, and journalists, et cetera, imagining how things might run amok. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I think it was important because the technology is so powerful and you can imagine ways to deploy it. Uh, it was always important to stake out a position of what the boundaries were. And, uh, you know, you, you'll remember it well. It's, As we had those discussions internally, in in some respects, it was pretty easy for us to say, look, there's a lot of disease in the world. Let's treat the patients that are here and figure out the ones that we can make some difference on and get going on that. Or some of these uh, more controversial items like germline editing, um, we have no interest in doing that. Um, And that hasn't changed over the years. Um, and you know, as I said, we've abided by that that principle, uh comfortably so, uh never attempted in any way to stray from that because there's so much to do directly with, you know, uh the diseases that are before us today. So yeah, it's it's interesting how things have sort of settled out. Now, you know, you and I both know there have been one or two cases where individuals, not based in companies, uh have sort of strayed from that um but I, I think they've been roundly criticized appropriately so and to my knowledge there's been no subsequent events where people have tried to color outside the line so to speak
0: it's yes uh, it, there there is an element i think everybody expected it to um Proliferate in a way that really has not materialized. You know, I think you probably recall, right, the whole thing about being able to have packages shipped to your garage, right? And people trying to CRISPR right. themselves. And fortunately, that's not how you know it's it's actually materialized. And uh, obviously, the companies now that are actually focused on are very highly ethical companies, very focused on true medical needs, and really somatic targeting, right? Um, as we think about the evolution, you know. There was an element, and I think we've seen this with things like ASOs, we've seen it with SIs, um, arguably we've seen it with uh, antibodies, where we believe when we identify a novel modality that it can do everything. And it's almost like, I think we described it as a Swiss Army knife right now, actually. uh, There are are days I feel that we seeded that term, and I keep hearing it now everywhere, uh, and and with some chagrin. Um, You know, but... As we kind of sat and looked at the what the technology really does best, um, it became very clear, right, that there are some very specific types of edits that it's very good at and it's very relevant to. And, you know, I think the the market probably has underappreciated the data that, that you guys have put out or Intelli has put out around the insertion aspect here, right? So it's not just switching a gene off, which is really where a lot of people focus on things, as in the case of. TTR, but really the opportunity to open up a piece of DNA and insert a new fragment of DNA actually at a a specific target to express a therapeutically relevant protein. Um, You've expanded beyond that. So you acquired Rewrite um, this year um, to really continue to expand that toolbox. It would be great to hear your thoughts about that sort of evolution of the technology, evolution of of the application of the technology. And any thoughts that you have as we think about where ultimately do we think this is a, a, this is going to go? Or is it going to be framed as a modality that has specific applications? And realistically, it's sort of, as you and I have discussed, like it sits in a toolbox of other modalities that may be more relevant for certain indications versus a genome editing approach.
1: Yeah, I, I, I like your use of the word toolbox because that's exactly how we think about it. Um, <clears throat> It's sort of a 3 prong strategy that we have here. We've talked about the in vivo uh, applications with systemic administration. That's one of the uh, prongs. A uh, second prong is the ex vivo work. The idea being that you can take a cell and have you know a multiplicity of edits and essentially rewire the cell. And we like to say that you know we we don't want the technology to limit uh, how far you can go. We want your imagination to limit that. So we've worked very, very hard on building capabilities, which not just editing, but just the delivery approach and how you treat the cells, et cetera, so that you can imagine 10, 20 edits, that kind of thing in cells uh, and really start thinking about some of these more complicated disease states. But the third prong is, is the one that you, you're pointing out, and that's this, this notion of the toolbox. We would never uh, call ourselves Solely a nuclease company. I would never call myself a base editing company or a gene writing company, because I think that limits uh, what you are. Each of those different approaches brings a particular capability, you know, functionality. uh, That you know, back to your notion of a toolbox, where you need a hammer or a screwdriver, whatever you reach for, that particular tool to go after whatever the disease you know, might be or whatever the particular editing, uh, uh, design might be. And, you know, I think we've shown that, you know, nucleus uh, can function extremely well at knocking out a gene, uh, preclinical work. We can drop in an entire piece of DNA and have it expressed, uh, extremely well. So we're excited about that. We, we see, Uh, our own base editing work as being helpful in particular ex vivo settings, where we think that's the best use case. And then, you know, your mentioning of of the rewrite acquisition is a complement to internal work that we're already doing to think about uh, even other forms uh, that are more complicated, more difficult to do, uh, but uh, interesting in the sense that you can in a very, very directed way, uh, modify a, a set of nucleotides in a totally predictable manner, which we call gene writing. And There's different ways to do that. Different companies are taking different approaches. But as a capability, um, you know, that's one that uh, we we have in the toolbox and are continuing to develop. And so, you know, it, it, it's interesting as you say, well, where does all this go? Um, I think uh I think it will go far. And if if you step back and conceptualize it more in terms of you know big ideas fixing broken genes and rewiring cells, uh I'm quite confident that we will have the editing tools uh to do most of those sorts of edits that you know disease we can imagine present to us. A real challenge, as you know, is getting to those cells themselves. We're finding disease states where, you know, the, the, the edit is going to make, you know, a meaningful difference. And so we're, we're not going to be able to roll back time if somebody uh, is born with a developmental disorder and, you know, it's you know, played out in every single uh, nucleated cell of his or her body. And things like that, but um, as we imagine sets of cells that we can manipulate, I, I think you know we're just in the early, earliest stages of what's going to be possible. And as we find ways to bring the editing uh, capability to beyond the liver, uh, and there's a lot of work going on to do that. You know the set of diseases that are you know monogenic in nature I think um you know that that list of treatable conditions is gonna only expand so um it's it's very exciting and you know, really makes it easy to come into work every day because there's always something uh interesting and and uh fun going on with respect to that
0: and you know, you mentioned base editing. I looked at and had the you know was fortunate enough to talk to a Sec over at Verve. Uh, their data continues to be very interesting and compelling as you think about moving that into the clinic. I was not surprised with Beam's recent data, just as you look at that level of off-target activity that seems to be there in uh, in the adjacent regions. So, you know, it's there is this evolution from a te- technological standpoint that seems to continue to be going on and refining of it to kind of clean things up. Um, as you look at you know the next sort of phase is there an area that you think is is going to be opening up or or do you actually think you know you talk about delivery do you think that that's probably the next sort of step change that we're going to see as we think about the deployment of these technologies
1: yeah it's it's a two dimensional problem an x and y axis <clears throat> the uh editing is moving along very nicely call that the y axis and you know, with some of these gene ring uh, techniques, uh, they work well in a dish, um, getting to them to the point where they're readily tractable in, in patients is sort of, you know, the, the technical challenge of the day. But I, I think we'll get there and we're we're certainly making very, very uh, good headway there. But the x-axis, which is, okay, the range of cells that you can deliver you know, the editing machinery too, continues to be challenging, you know? So um, getting into the bone marrow, which is what we're trying to do and made you know, some headway on uh, into the brain, into the lung and, you know, all these uh, different tissues where, yeah, they're monogenic diseases that if you just get there, you know exactly what to do. That remains... I believe, one of the fundamental challenges that the the space confronts. So we actively look for people who are making headway uh, to complement their own efforts in those delivery approaches. And I think that's the area that's going to, with advances, open up the greatest range of opportunities because the editing is increasingly in hand. And, And you know as well as I do that, you know, once. CRISPR, or in whatever form, is inside a cell. It doesn't care. <laughs> the DNA is the DNA. It's that cell, uh, that tissue, in getting into that cell, that is just you know, a, a a primary limitation that we have to overcome at this point.
0: Well, I, that it's it is interesting when you talk about. It, it doesn't care the DNA. That was a critical consideration for us at the start so what's the half-life of the crispr system that we're putting in um and how quickly will it be cleared so go in make the edits we wanted to make and then effectively disappear. And to me you know dialing that in and being very clear about that from as we think about safety tolerability really was a critical aspect and you know you touched on the importance of the lmp's i think one of the things it warrants noting was we didn't go down the av route in part because of a concern where you would have a constitutively expressed uh, Cas9 actually in the cell with it. That would be there for quite some time. And, 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 and the uncertainty around potential implications to that I think was, you know, really sort of made us take a step back and say that's probably not the right way to go. Putting aside the overall manufacturing CMC issues and challenges around it and integration around it. Um, you know, as you think about the ideal delivery system, does that still hold for you given the data that you have today? Or are you starting to change your uh, the profile of what you you believe is an appropriate delivery system now for for uh, an editing an editing tool?
1: Yeah, it you know the way you characterize it is is on target. Um, people sometimes forget that these proteins are bacterial; <laughs> these are not human proteins typically that we're expressing. And every you know editing modality has the cats uh, system in it in some form or another, so our belief has always been that you know a trains and expression system is just the right way to go. Um, and I think that's correct. Uh, early on, you, know, you we all know that uh in the early days, there's a lot of interest in showing progress. Um, and, you know, delivering something and editing something is important to show. But again, if you take a longer view and and think about in terms of products that are actually going to work and make a difference for patients, there's just some very basic things that you have to contend with. And this is one of those things. So our principle is that, you know, it's a foreign protein, it should be expressed uh, you know, ideally uh, till the moment the edit is complete and if it could vanish at that next nanosecond, that would be ideal. Uh, and so whatever can yield that kind of trans- transient expression is so always going to be something we can, you know, we're going we're to prefer. The chemical approaches, you know, as in the form of a lipid nanoparticle that serves us well, uh, I don't think, uh, as we understand it today, that that's going to solve every, you know, problem in every, uh, uh, tissue type. And so we'll need other ways to achieve that sort of transient expression. And whether it's biologic in nature, call it viral. Um, that may be the case, but it just needs to be done in a certain way that, accomplishes the edit and then um, uh, leaves you know the tissue uh, completely behind as it it disappears and so we work on that we think about that Um, but you know I think it's most accurate to say that we're trying to take the LMPs as far as we can take them uh, because we know they've served us well so far and it's really a question of you know what is the you know, the ultimate boundary of them. And and we certainly hope to uh, probe that to the fullest extent possible.
0: One of the things we've seen, so, excuse me. One of the things we saw at the start, you know, we were, I think we were the third company created in the space, right? Um, Right. We, were the slowest to get into the clinic. I was somebody presented a chart at a at a board meeting yesterday and and they had the timelines for people to get into the clinic and, and Intelli was listed and I think we were of the CRISPR companies who we were the slowest to get into the clinic. Um but that was very deliberate as we th- uh, you know as we looked at building the tools or the capabilities internally to actually provide that ability to then rapidly once you do the your POC with the first one then rapidly be able to move forward. Since the three initial companies, Editas, CRISPR Therapeutics, and ourselves, there's now been this sort of explosion of editing companies out there, and, and it, it always feels like the list is just getting longer and longer. I don't know. You probably see it too, right? Every day you are opening up BioCentury, and you're looking to see what next gene editing company uh, got it got financed, and what are they actually doing. And it, it it feels like there's more noise in the system now that the differentiation is. Is lightly becoming more and more challenging for these companies until you 've got that clinical data set um, would you agree with that
1: um i I do um in fact, I call it the swarm uh, <laughs> and I, and that's not meant to be disparaging anyway you know i mean there's a lot of people working really hard trying to you know uh come up with the next advance and you know it's it's my, my view of this when i when i look at it is i i don't see and it's gonna sound terribly partisan here but uh uh trying to be objective i just i just don't see the differentiation or the major advance uh as most of these uh companies uh come out. And, I mean we'll see. Time will tell and I, I could well be wrong here. But our view is if if you don't, you know, uh choose to focus on a single thing, uh, you know, and have that be your end all and be all, but take the, you know, platform investment approach, this toolbox notion. We just don't see anything coming out that causes us to, feel, you know, surpassed in, in any way. In fact, our belief, based on what we see at least, obviously we don't know what's going on in every single company if they haven't presented it yet, but, you know, we feel really good about uh, our platform capabilities and, and, and believe that all this stuff starts with a deep understanding of the CRISPR-Cas system. And we've been working on that now for eight years. And uh, I don't believe anyone surpasses them. There may be people who equal it, but I don't believe anybody surpasses that. And, and the platform we've built and some of the just fundamental capabilities with respect to you know, the bioinformatics, the chemistry, the synthesis, as well as any of these different modalities. And so, you know, it's it's gratifying, I guess. And, you know, as we listen to other people compare themselves to the work that we've done, uh, it makes us feel that, okay, if, if if everybody needs to invoke us in some form or another, that must mean that we're a reference point for people, and 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 that just makes us feel good about continuing the work that we do. We're very mindful of uh, that. You know, science evolves, and you, you just you got to keep producing, and, and 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 that's why we invest so actively. But I don't see in that array of new companies just a fundamental restatement of anything that we're already doing here.
0: It's that's where I think the next five years probably is going to tell us where where is that step change or is there a step change that's going to take place? You know, you look back, you know, you talked about HIV, you know, we didn't touch on HCV as we think about curative therapy. You look at things like a vivastin, and I was talking to Jim Burchanoff about that story. Uh, you look at Humira, like there are these step changes that you actually see or have a significant or profound impact. As we look at patients, and I think the first draft or the first wave of that human in, in vivo systemic delivery human data sort of is one of those step changes uh, in medicine. One of the things you and I have talked about historically is around HIV access to drugs. And I think you, you've you talked around you know San Francisco, what was going on at the time there how people actually looked at being able to access those drugs. And and I think you and I have talked also actually about it for HCV as things like Silvati came out and the implications from a large patient population trying to access these types of drugs. We obviously are seeing CAR-Ts now, you know, in the market, relatively high price point. And, you know, I'm not looking to go into the reason why it's high, but it's a relatively high price point. Gene therapy, the same thing. From a cost access reimbursement standpoint are you what's your sort of take on these sort of modalities and not necessarily specific to Italian and and, and intelia's drugs but more as we're looking at these more genetic medicines more of them coming online and more of them having such potential profound impact on patients how do you think about that sort of access to it cost and overall back to patient you know being able to get them to patients and um, have the patients effectively um, benefit from them.
1: Right, I, I, I think the challenge has two poles uh, to it. One of them is the innovation itself. Can you create something that has you know the intended effect? And then the other pole there is is access to that, and That access is, you know, (laughs) well, they're both particularly challenging uh, in their respective ways. Uh, the, The access side is further complicated by, you know, the range of economic, you know, capabilities and healthcare systems, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing we do know that if one can make really significant headway <clears throat> on the cost of goods uh, and the efficiency of making these things, the range of patients for whom access becomes possible really starts expanding and you know I, I'll just give you an example of of one way to think about that, and this, this is not the final step by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, when you think about the CAR-T space, again, I think this is one of those areas where we've shown, uh, you know, not us at Antelia but others have shown that uh, engineered cell therapy can make a really big difference for patients. But it's extremely expensive, largely because most of these formats are autologous, which means patient materials manufactured Patient by patient, with instead of the big manufacturing lots for for which many patients can be uh, treated, you're doing it one at a time, which is the most expensive, the most inefficient way of doing it. Highly effective, but from an economic point of view, highly challenging. If one can crack the code, if you will, in terms of solving that problem, so that you can have. Pull it off the shelf, cells that not only perform but persist and, and achieve the same results or better results than when the autologous setting, you can really start to think about, you know, how the economics of that system might start to change. Now, is that going to address the, you know, bottom of the pile from an economic point of view? I don't know. I I think we're gonna need more innovations than in that with a lot of very careful thinking about how you know we supply these 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 agents, and frankly, some of these patients will have other problems that I think trump uh, you know uh, a carte for example, but nonetheless, this is a process, and it plays out year after year, and I think that uh, if you take a long view of this, uh, one can imagine outcomes some years from now where uh, these sorts of drugs are available to a very wide range of patients, not just in the developed countries, but well beyond that. And, and you know, while going into the details, we have people working with us already, trying to think about how to achieve that. And in my sense, is that um, you know, with time, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get there.
0: Yes, I, I, you probably recall when we did that initial cost of goods analysis, what whatever years ago, it was like just shocking. Um, and we obviously saw this with other, uh, you know, nu- uh, nucleic-based drugs like ASOs and SIs. Um, and the cost now, as you think about scale, you know, efficiencies in manufacturing, we saw it with monoclonal antibodies too, right? You know, the efficiencies really start to drop that substantially um, and really opens up the potential here. You know, I-, I reflect a lot on the first time you and I met um, Atlas Retreat, uh, standing in line to, I think it was to get dinner, and then subsequent lunch in uh, in Chicago, uh, where I was trying to convince you to get on a plane to fly with me to uh, San Francisco for a meeting there uh, on the crispr cast space. You it. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it, it, it is amazing how these things, like looking back, you know, it's you look at these kind of moments and it really is amazing how companies uh, kind of come together and looking back on it, what's been accomplished and achieved in that period of time you know to back to that clinical data readout that you guys uh, put out or the update you put out earlier this year it 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 really kind of makes you take a step back and just kind of go wow how lucky how lucky were we right to be part of this uh, and to play you know play a role in what i think is going to be a huge i hope is going to be a huge step change as we think about the treatment of uh, of patients and moving from you know, prophylactic or, or maintenance therapy into potentially curative?
1: Netson, I have, well, first of all, it was a salad bar line. It was lunch that I remember <laughs> very But we were standing in a line, uh, absolutely. And I have told that story probably 200 times. Uh, and that, that lunch in Chicago, um, I remember... Very, very well, because it did lead to hopping on a plane uh, a few days later and, you know, having the adventure. And, and I very much consider it an adventure again. So I'm I'm grateful you started talking to me in that line because I think I was focused on what's for lunch. Uh, and uh, I'm grateful that you were so compelling as, as we sat there that day in Chicago, because had that not happened for me. You know, I'd be doing something different uh, today. And I think it's it's one of those things that, you know, when I, as I reflect on, you know, over the course of my entire career, it's moments like that where, you know, it's a fork in the road and you say yes or no. And, and uh, it turns out to be so. Um, consequential in so many ways and and those were some of those early moments that lead directly to you know this conversation today. so i'm I'm deeply grateful.
0: As am I, you know, for you going on this journey with me, I think what what you may not recall or you may, uh, you know it was great that you were willing to speak to me because I think I'd presented the uh, the concept that morning. Uh, in the session at Atlas and they uh, everybody thought I was crazy so most people actually were running away from me pretty quickly Um, so you talked about being isolated there was an element of being isolated or alone you know Uh, it was great to sit and chat with you and then uh, obviously lead into uh, what ultimately became uh, in and the story that it is today so congratulations and everything that you've accomplished there and the data that's come out over the um, the past few years and I really look forward to uh, continuing to uh, watch the company grow and uh, treat patients which is our primary focus here
1: Thank you, and It's a pleasure remembering the story together, and uh, um, there are many chapters yet to be written, so it's, it's, I look forward to them that, that as
0: well. That's for sure. Well, thank you for your time today. This has been great to uh, catch up with you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves.